Hi, I'm Jennifer Isabella. And I'm Sharon Lever. Your co-hosts for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, where we explore the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. Today, we're joined by senior analyst Ariel Trzinski to discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic has impacted the adoption of virtual care. Welcome. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Sharon. Thanks for having me. So I feel like virtual care has been around for a really long time. Like we've been talking about it for maybe decades at at this point. So we know it's not new, but maybe you could share a little bit of a short history here of virtual care and some of the dynamics that are at play today. Absolutely. Thanks, Jennifer. It's a, a great question. I think for us to level set Right. So virtual care is something that emerged in the 1950s, 1960s, you know, is something that could help connect providers that were within the inpatient setting. Um, So initially it was actually used for helping support psychiatry um, and helping getting patients connected to providers that they otherwise may not have been able to access. And so that notion of being able to stay more connected to providers, right, and improving access to care is something that stays with us today. Um, and so as we look at virtual care and this just incredible surge of adoption that we have seen amid the pandemic, it is out of need to be able to access providers, provide um, safe, right, efficient and convenient access for patients that are staying safe at home, um, ensuring that we have continuity of care um, for these patients, but also ensuring that we keep providers, right, healthcare providers safe um, from exposure to potentially COVID-19 patients. Um, So we have seen an incredible surge of adoption just out of this um, realm of necessity, right, of the fact that we have to make sure that patients can still get access to care, but also due to the fact that we are in a healthcare crisis um, as we are, you know, are deep in the the COVID-19 pandemic right now. So you said an interesting phrase there of, of we're adopting out of necessity, um, which makes complete sense. And it also suggests that there was some reason or some reasons prior to this that kept us from really adopting virtual care. Um, I know you've said in the past, you know, we've we've been predicting this kind of spike in adoption for some time, and yet it really hasn't happened until now. What What have been the big limitations of it that have kept us from mass adoption of virtual care up to this up until this point? Yeah. So from our research, and we've been looking at virtual care now for a number of years, um, our research has shown that there were three barriers that existed to consumers accessing virtual care historically. Um, So first was the, it was cost, right? It was very cost prohibitive um, for consumers to access care. Um, On the provider side, we also saw a lack of reimbursement and a lack of reimbursement parity. And so providers were encouraged to bring patients into the office because they were paid higher rates than if they saw patients over virtual care. Uh, The second barrier that we found is that uh, patients want to be able to connect with their existing providers, right? They want to talk to their PCP that knows them, right? Their specialist that that has met them before, knows their family. Um, And third, it was frankly just a lack of awareness. So there's this, you know, sense of people not even knowing that this benefit was available to them in some cases. Um, Over 90% of employer-sponsored plans offered some sort of uh, virtual care support 
or benefit um, for patients or employees to be able to access virtual care services. But unfortunately, you know, if we look back to last year, you know, the adoption is in the, the rates of you know, single digits um, in terms of patients actually enrolling and using these services. And so because of these existing barriers around things like cost and awareness and lack of the ability to maintain the relationship with your provider, right, it prohibited consumers from truly adopting um, these services. So now during the pandemic, what we have seen is a surge of funding going from the government to various provider systems, um, such as you know, the CARES Act providing uh, access to funds from the FCC, um, giving funds to provider systems to stand up their own virtual care platforms to provide care to their existing patients. We also saw incredible policy change from CMS and from other health insurers that said, you know, yes, you can seek care from your own existing provider, um, removing barriers such as, you know, it needs to be an existing patient that you have seen within the last two years, for example. Um, there were small policy changes that made an incredible impact in being able to eliminate some of the barriers and access to care. That's a lot of change within a short period of time, plus a pandemic. Do we understand the, the impact of those factors have had on virtual care and virtual care adoption today? Absolutely. So we have been talking to a number of virtual care vendors, um, including those that we found as you know, leaders in our virtual care wave, um, and asking them, you know, what are they seeing in terms of uptick and adoption? Um, and we've seen incredible numbers in terms of growth. Um, so for example, we talked to BrightMD, right, who was a leader in our wave, and they saw a 2,000% increase in net new patients using their platform just in the month of April. <laughs> so, you know, that's an incredible uptick in terms of patients enrolling. Um, Zipnosis was another vendor that we included in that, that research. Um, they reported almost 500,000 net new registrations. So new patients joining their platform to connect with their own provider. So Zipnosis is a, a platform that helps connect patients to their existing providers, to their existing primary care doctor, dermatologist, et cetera. Um, and so what we've seen is an incredible uptick in adoption of those platforms that primarily help serve existing provider networks. And is that surge getting turned into making the platforms even better? Is the experience improving because of this? Or is it, again, back to the necessity idea that we're just adopting it because because we need to, and then picking the best platforms that are available. Yeah. So unfortunately, you know, initially a lot of these decisions that were being made by providers were more focused on that aspect of necessity and the need to do something quickly, right, to be able to support those patients. And so in many cases, it was a question of, you know, cost, right, and thinking about what is the cheapest option. Um, you know, unfortunately, you know, as we know, sometimes that does not necessarily yield the best provider experience or the best patient experience, right? When you think about the UX side um, of a platform, and it's incredibly important when we're thinking about healthcare, right, for a patient to have 
ease, right, and being able to get access to healthcare, we know that providing, you know, ease as part of that process will evoke positive emotion, which leads to them, again, returning to reuse that service. But also on the provider side, thinking about the employee experience, we already put so much pressure on clinicians to, you know, have to do additional documentation, um, digital data entry as part of that patient encounter. Um, and unfortunately, you know, we look at an in-person encounter, we know that providers spend almost twice as much time doing documentation as they do doing, doing clinical work, right? So there are ways that these platforms have embedded capabilities such as voice um, to be able to help with documentation and removing some of that clinical burden. Um, however, not all of the platforms provide that. And so, you know, we now see a new issue where providers are coming to us and saying, what should I be looking for in a virtual care, care platform, right? Because I had to make a decision very quickly. Um, now I'm staring at the fact that my provider system has five or six different platforms. I don't have a unified digital experience for my patients. They have a different process and protocol that they have to follow if they're making an appointment with their PCP versus with their dermatologist. And it's inconsistent for our brand, right? What do we we do, um, but it's also looking at, you know, I put this strain on my providers um, that, you know, to also have to do additional work, right, to um, task switch, right, from one platform to another, um, but also think about the additional burden of documentation. When we talk about virtual care, what is the scope of that? So obviously you rattled off like a few um, examples of how you know, clinicians are engaging with that platform. But what about the consumer? What what does that entail for the consumer? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think, you know, one of the things that we want to make sure we ensure we do is level setting on what is virtual care, right? Because there are so many different definitions in the market. The way that Forrester defines virtual care is any clinician-patient interaction that would take place via a phone, um, a video interaction, or through a secure messaging platform. Um, so it is a clinician, you know, has to be available to evaluate the patient, right, and confirm a diagnosis. It would include things like telehealth and telemedicine, of which there are formal definitions from CMS and other governing bodies. Um, we are more inclusive in our definition because we recognize that asynchronous messaging for patients and providers is something that we continue to see um, adopted. Um, so folks like uh, 98.6 is a, a virtual care platform that staffs their own clinicians, but all of their communication is done through asynchronous text so that patients have a secured private conversation that they can do from anywhere. If it was such a slow start, and it sounds like a lot of providers and other folks within the ecosystem are, as you said, have adopted kind of the quick fix, the, the immediate thing, and are now grappling with what to do longer term. There's a potential that this could just stall again, right? Where there's, when there's not that sense of urgency. You've talked a lot about the challenges that we saw in the past. It sounds like some of those have been overcome during this process, but if you think, you know, five years out of, of if virtual care really continues to become the new normal, what are the key things that need to change from where we are now to keep it moving in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. And so 
I think one of the biggest things we don't want to do is fall into that trap right? of, you know, going back to the way things were before the pandemic. We now have consumers that have been exposed to something that's very convenient in some cases is more cost effective than an in-person option. Um, unfortunately, in, in some cases, that is due to temporary um, waiving of co-pays and a different cost to the consumer. And so provider systems, um, so we'll talk about this in, in three different parts. So provider systems to start have an opportunity to think about not only their communication strategy, but also their pricing strategy for virtual care. Um, so virtual care can be a critical can play a critical role across multiple aspects of the care journey. It can be helpful in not only you know, primary care and something that arises as more you know, urgent, but it can also provide care to patients that may be recovering at home from a surgery right, in post-acute um, setting. And so there's different ways of being able to use virtual care to help ensure continuity um, of care to the patient, but also maintaining the relationship with the patient. And we see, you know, as more convenient options enter into healthcare. So things like you know, coming from Walmart, coming from Amazon, you know, to provide more direct to consumer and convenient options, you know, providers have to provide these services at a price point, right, that is more competitive than these new entrants that are coming into healthcare. And so we encourage provider systems to revisit their pricing strategies now. Um, think about, you know, what is it going to look like post-pandemic when you don't necessarily have the support from health insurers to waive um, some of these fees, um, but also making sure that you are upfront with your cost information. So when a patient is making an appointment, you can very you know, quickly upfront say, you know, a self-pay patient, let's say, so someone that perhaps is now unemployed and has lost their insurance, um, it's $25 for a visit. Right, and you're very much upfront with what this is what it's going to cost. Um, and in healthcare, you know, cost is something that is essentially a black box for patients. Right, you walk into an appointment not knowing what your healthcare is going to cost you. Um, you might know what your copay is or what your deductible is, but beyond that, you have no idea what that bill is going to look like until it shows up maybe a month later. And so virtual care is this great starting point to introduce more pricing transparency to patients. Um, on the health insurance side, we see a number of health insurers working with employers as well as working with providers to help provide more cost-effective options, recognizing that virtual care helps maintain that continuity of care. It keeps the patient engaged, which ultimately leads to lower medical spend for the health insurer. So both the health insurer as well as an employer stand to benefit if a patient is ultimately more engaged in getting their care and getting more preventative services. And so things like value-based care right, or capitated arrangements can help support ensuring that we are truly coordinating care for that patient and we can do so through the use of, of virtual care. Um, we've also seen employers work directly with um, various health insurers as well as direct-to-consumer options. Um, so for example, 98.6 works frequently directly with employers to help provide access to virtual care services. Um, they are offering services at $1 a visit, um, which is, you know, an incredibly, you know, attractive price point for an employee, you know, that's looking at potentially going to urgent care, not knowing what their 
you know, visit is going to cost them versus maybe doing a video visit or, you know, a chat with a 98.6 physician, knowing that it's going to cost them $1, right? That's, you know, there's low risk associated with trying out virtual care or continuing to use that service. It sounds like with that example, great price point, but it's not the provider that you know and want to see on an ongoing basis. So is that a long-term um, kind of influence that you think in how this whole market plays out? Or do you go back to your original point that consumers want to talk to the providers that they know, and therefore the providers themselves need to be driving this, adopting the key platforms, and then enabling them for their consumers? Yeah, Sharon, it's a great question. And I think as we see rising unemployment rates and we see more patients potentially delaying care because of concerns around cost, there's an opportunity for providers to revisit their pricing strategies um, as they think about virtual care being that initial point of contact for many patients. Um, and they have an opportunity to win, but they do have to revisit you know, what is the price for virtual care um, and thinking about the fact that consumers do not necessarily put the same amount of value in a virtual care visit as they do an in-person visit. Um, and so, you know, they stand to win, but there's still work to be done uh, to truly be competitive with the direct-to-consumer options that many health insurers have partnered with. Um, patients want to connect with their own provider that they trust, right? a key barrier to virtual care and a continued barrier, unfortunately, is trust in the quality of care um, and the quality of the advice that's given by a provider over virtual care. And so if you can connect with your own provider that has met you and knows you, you trust that advice more. And so it, it is a key thing that we have to overcome right, to ensure trust and confidence in the care that's being delivered virtually. Are you also seeing providers sort of uh, take a step back in their customer journeys and mapping out, you were sort of referencing this earlier in the conversation about what are those touch points, which of those should be virtual, in person, as we think about kind of getting back to a, a new normal or whatever that looks like. Um, I, I feel like that's probably in the mix here as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if you think about the care journey, you know, the initial process that you might follow, right, is this... Um, process of recognition, right? You have, you recognize that you have symptoms and something's wrong. And so in many cases, historically, we've seen consumers turn to Dr. Google for answers, right? To say, you know, what is this rash or what do these symptoms mean? Um, the good news, I will say, and perhaps a bright spot of the pandemic is that we have seen a surge in adoption of self-triage solutions. So self-triage solutions help a consumer not only understand their symptoms, but also help them determine where is the most appropriate care setting, including virtual care care or in-person care. And so we've seen a surge of adoption around these tools, not only for COVID-19 symptoms, but also for other symptoms like flu and other um, illnesses or diagnoses that could be served over virtual care, for example. And what's nice about these solutions is that many of them are integrated with practice administration um, tools or even CRMs to be able to ensure that we have this continuous view of what is happening to this patient, what different digital assets are they interacting with, um, but also ensuring that we provide a clean pathway to scheduling a virtual care visit, for example. Um, another pain point that we heard from consumers in our research is that many consumers just do not know where to start 
They don't know if they should be going to their health insurer's website, to their provider's website. Um, and so they struggle with even making that initial action of scheduling a virtual care visit. And so self-triage, which is emerged on many websites and digital applications for provider systems, helps provide that pathway to scheduling that visit, but also the confidence that it's the right care setting for them. So we've talked about some of the hurdles that need to be overcome, but I think there's probably a few more that you want to hit on. And as we look sort of staring down the barrel of what is going to be the new normal um, moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. And we, we've hit on some of these, but I think it's important to call out that some of these hurdles you know, can be tackled with lightweight solutions and some are going to require more investment from firms. Um, so when we think about you know, lightweight things that can be done to, to help improve adoption of virtual care, you know, marketing, you know, and awareness, right? We, we recognize that awareness is a huge hurdle for us to try and overcome historically. Um, and so, you know, as you think about you know, trying to um, drive continued proactive communication to patients, to members, to employees, right? Recognizing, you know, when to use virtual care, um, the benefits that it can provide in terms of maintaining the continuity of care for patients if they have chronic care conditions or if, you know, it's a minor issue that we can keep them, you know, safe in their own homes um, and allow them to connect with their PCP conveniently, um, but also in a cost-effective manner. Um, but people need to know that that's an option, right? And they need to know the cost, right? So being upfront, more proactive communication and over communication, honestly, is going to play a really important role. Um, that also includes doing lightweight things like providing an FAQ, right? addressing questions and concerns around, you know, data privacy, um, ensuring that, you know, as people hear about things like Zoom in the news, right? Understanding that their virtual care visit is private, it's secure, their information is secure. Um, you have to reassure consumers, right? That that information is, um, is truly private. Also making sure that consumers understand how to prepare for the appointment. Um, what's been interesting is that, you know, many patients struggle with, you know, just the uncertainty of not knowing what's going to happen when they have a virtual care visit, or even you know, what steps are going to take place before they meet with a provider. Um, so clear communication about what does the customer journey look like, right? Are they going to have a medical assistant call them? Are they going to be going into a digital waiting room? What information is going to be collected from them? Do they need their insurance card, right? What questions should they anticipate? But also how do they prepare for interacting with their provider over video? right, preparing the same way that they would for an in-person visit, right, preparing their questions, um, making sure they're in a quiet place, right, understanding, you know, additional um, security uh, protocols that they could also uh, be putting in place in terms of their browser or turning off, you know, their phone, right, other things that are going to help bolster their confidence um, and understanding that this is a, a private and secure conversation, but also just making it feel more familiar um, to a patient when it is something that's very new to many. Um, lastly, and this is more of, you know, a heavyweight <laughs> investment, um, unifying the customer experience. We have heard from many provider systems that that now have upwards of five or six different platforms. And so patients are experiencing different processes to schedule an appointment, as well as different ways of interacting with providers. And so the more you can do to unify that experience and make it consistent upfront, right, by using things like self triage, digital waiting rooms, right, to 
be more of that front layer that helps provide a consistent experience, you also help ensure that your brand is consistent across all of those platforms. Ariel, what do you think? There, there's such an ecosystem around this, and I think it's really easy for us to say, oh, virtual care, that's for the providers to figure out, right, um, and let it go there. Can you talk maybe for each one of the key players in the ecosystem, what you think their role is in helping to push virtual care further? So employers, insurers, providers, and then I, I suppose the, the patients and consumers themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you're right, right? It's an ecosystem that has to come together in many ways um, to ensure that, you know, consumers as a whole, right, whether they are patients or their members or employees um, are, are gaining access to affordable, convenient care. Um, so when it comes to providers, right, providers have a a role or an imperative to ensure that they are implementing systems you know, virtual care platforms that ensure continuity of care, right? That ensure patients can continue to access their services um, and meet with their own existing providers, their PCPs, their specialists, et cetera. Health insurers, I think, have maybe a more, you know, pivotal role in terms of having to change their historical strategies around virtual care. Um, so health insurers historically have partnered with virtual care platforms that staffed their own physicians, right? So things like Teladoc, like Amwell, um, that provided their own physicians to care for those members. We know from our research, and I think the past three months of activity has shown this, that patients and members alike want to connect with their own providers, right? They want to talk to someone that they trust, which means that health insurers have to rethink the way that they partner with those platforms, right? Ensuring that they are getting that member connected to their own existing provider, not someone that they don't know and then they've, they've never met before. Um, they also need to make sure that it's cost effective, right? So that might mean helping subsidize the cost to both the provider as well as to the consumer. It may also be looking at new ways of providing affordable coverage or affordable benefits um, for consumers as well as looking at revisiting reimbursement rates for providers that are looking to offer virtual care services to their patients. Um, and we're seeing some of that be discussed on a national level um, within CMS and you know, hopefully policy changes, but it's still yet to take permanent change. Lastly, on the front of employers, employers have an imperative, I think, to work with health insurers that offer virtual care services, including mental health services to employees. Um, that's an area that we've seen be previously underserved, and we need to ensure that as employees look to return to work, we know that fear is rising amongst those employees and they need more support from a mental health perspective to help with stress, help with anxiety, um, and help with, in some cases, um, depressive um, symptoms as well. And so, you know, improving access to those types of services really sits with the employers, you know, as we see many consumers and employees turning to that employer first. Um, as a resource and helping guide where they should go for care. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thanks, Ariel. If you like what you heard today, subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening. <laughs>